and welcome to I Think You're Interesting. I'm Todd Vanderwerf, and I am I Think You're Interesting. And this week, we're talking to two men named John. That's a joke, but they're both guys I've really loved the work of. We're going to start by talking to somebody who I admire and respect greatly. I really love talking to him about the television industry when I am just wanting to have a casual chat about this business I cover. He's somebody that I will often approach if I see him at some sort of function or meeting just to to ask him about how things are going. And, you know, let me introduce him by sort of telling a quick story, which is a few years ago at the Television Critics Association press tour, he referred to himself jokingly and sort of said, now, if I were the mayor of television... And immediately, all of us proclaimed him the mayor of television, a thing that he had said in a hypothetical as a joke, and now the title has sort of stuck. His name is John Langraff. He's the president and CEO of FX Networks. He's put some of the best shows on the air, and he's one of the deepest thinkers about what makes good television out there and all other sorts of topics. Our conversation was ostensibly about the past, present, and future of the TV industry, but we also talked about demagoguery. We talked about capitalism. We talked about, you know, what it means to try to make art in a world that is so tilted toward commerce. So I think you're really going to love that. And then after that, we're going to be talking to actor Jonathan Price. So we've got John Langraff first and then stick around for another conversation. My guest is John Langraff. He's the president and CEO of FX Networks. John, thank you for joining us. Happy to be here, Todd. You coined the term peak TV. You were one of the first people to talk about the idea that Netflix wasn't releasing ratings and what that could mean. Like your address at the TCA is this event. And I'm wondering... How much time do you spend preparing? Like how much, do you, do you jot down notes? Do you write out like a script or? I don't really spend that much time preparing, believe <laughs> yeah. it or not. I, I mean, I guess preparation really has to do with doing your job, which is trying to be curious and trying to learn and try to read. You know, I, I do read very broadly and try to pay attention to what is happening in the industry, not only in terms of creative trends, but also in terms of business trends. And I read a lot of analysts and I try to understand telecom and technology and a whole lot of things that are affecting us. And generally speaking, when it comes time to do a TCA, there are just things on my mind that are reflective of what I'm thinking about and w- or worried about or excited about or thinking about you know how things are developing. One of the things uh, I think is sort of fascinating is you don't just talk about television. You sort of try to place it in a context of like the country or economic regulations or something like that. Obviously, you have a very small part of the overall landscape of the world. Like, how do you think about positioning, I guess, FX as a responsible citizen, so to speak, mm-hmm. of, of that world? You know, maybe it, maybe it comes back to the fact that uh, I think, I think, like you, like a lot of critics uh, and a lot of people who make television, I'm just a lover of art, mm-hmm. and I'm a really avid consumer of story, right? And I'm curious and. I have a degree in anthropology, not a degree in media communications or business, but in anthropology, which I think is reflective of just an interest in the human condition. And uh, and I think one of the things I love about story is it has it allows us to go to different places and times and to see the world sometimes from outside of our own perspective. And I think I became addicted to that notion of getting out of my own skin. And, you know, what, where that started was, was with a love story. But eventually what I realized is if I want to do that in a serious way, I really have to understand history. I really have to understand politics. I have to understand 
evolutionary biology. I have to understand psychology. You know, I have to understand sociology because one of the things that's so interesting to me is that each of us is caught in our own timeline. Right. So I was born in May of 1962 and I will die whenever I die and I cannot move outside of that timeline. Now I can do it through history and I can do it through thinking forward or I can do it through story. But part of what's become fascinating to me as I've gotten older, I'm 56 now, is understanding how much of how I view the world is a function of that timeline. So, for example, I, born, being born in 1962, that means I was born 17 years after the end of World War II. And the feeling coming out of World War II is that we had defeated Nazism and we had defeated the whole idea, the notion of Nazism, what it, what it represents in human nature and what it represents in the world forever, good beat evil. And I, I realized that I had that assumption baked in in a way I didn't even know. Yeah. But that essentially, if you move forward in the timeline, people forget the concentration camps. They forget Nazis and they forget the hard lessons of that. And it, it comes back as a, as a characteristic in human nature. And so I think the thing that I constantly realize is that, is that I, I may be experiencing only a tiny portion of the macrocosm, but I'm but I'm really genuinely trying to understand as much of it as I can. And I think part of what's exciting to me about FX is even though we've been trying to make, you know, what you'd call premium television or trying to contribute to the sort of high end or the best of what television is, we've always been a, you know, a commercial supported network. So we've never felt that our constituency was just, you know, TV critics or just people who live in New York or Los Angeles. We've always felt our constituency is everyone. So I'm always trying to understand you know, the specificity of so many different individual stories, whether it has to do with when you live or where you live, what region, your culture, your political orientation, your sexual orientation, your gender, your ethnicity. But then I'm also trying to understand how those specific things relate to the universal human question. And I feel that story has a role to play to try to help gain clarity. And of course, I think that there's a lot of confusion being intentionally distributed right now through these new technologies, you know, right. the internet and other things. And so I'm a little worried about whether story is up to the task, mm. but I've always felt that to be a part of our responsibility. When you look at that question of, especially now in the television landscape, there are shows made for, it feels for very specific audiences, especially if you go on Netflix or Hulu or something like that. They have an algorithm that will tell you exactly what you want ostensibly. Do you think about like, the responsibility of programming to an audience, but then also the responsibility of making that more universal. I think about something like Atlanta, which is my favorite show of the year still. Just from hearing about Atlanta, you would not think that Todd Vanderwerf, an extremely white person from the middle of the country, would like hook into that show so much. But I did, and it taught me about things I don't know about. I'm wondering like how you balance those two ideas of like making a show like Atlanta for its core audience, but then also making it in a way that I can still mm -hmm. latch onto it. You know, one of my biggest concerns about the way that technology is evolving and the possibilities that are created by big data and by the internet is that I, I, I think of the world as having these two strains in it. One strain I would call demagoguery, and I would call that, broadly speaking, just give the people what they want. Don't care whether it's good for them, whether it, it helps them. If what people want is fat, sugar, crunch, and salt, just figure out the perfect ratio and don't care whether it'll kill you or whether it's good for you or not. And I think that in every uh, business practice or political practice, the easiest thing on some level is to do that. Right. 
And then you contrast that with the notion of trying to find some, some, something that's both tasty and nutritional and that's, you know, beautiful but ugly and funny but dramatic and challenging. And I think artists and art in general for me, the stuff that I have always liked the best is the stuff that tries to take a very specific shard of the human condition and then achieve some universal portrayal of the human condition. And so a common characteristic of every movie and every book and every play and every television show I've ever loved is that even though it's about one specific place and time, it's really about humanity writ large. And I think Atlanta, which is a show that I also really love, has done a, something really special, which is it's, it's gone deeper and more specifically into a particular prism of the African-American experience in Atlanta. And yet it resonates with me anyway as a pathway into some universal understanding of the human condition, not just, not just blackness in, in America today, but, but America today, and, and even bigger questions than that. And I think the thing that I, I really worry about is that, you know, we build this perfect feedback loop where the only thing anybody ever gets is what they've liked before or what they've told you either consciously or unconsciously through your studying their data, what they want. So nobody gets any new ideas, right? I mean, even the notion of the, I've got a smartphone on the table in front of me and I've read these fascinating studies that say that, you know, the closer a smartphone is to someone, the lower they perform on an IQ test. Literally, it's different if it's on and in front of you than if it's on and, you know, in your bag on the floor versus it's out of the room. And I think part of that is because you know, just because you have a remote memory or remote access to every piece of information the world's ever known doesn't mean it's yours. It's not yours until you, unless you've taken the time to actually learn it and load it into your brain where you can understand it and think about it and manipulate it symbolically. So if we offload all of our memory and all of our knowledge into remote memory as opposed to having it inside our heads, I think we impoverish our, our ability to think and our intellectual life. So you like sci-fi sometimes. Like yeah, there's a, there's a famous uh, thing called the Fermi paradox, sure. Enrico Fermi, which says, why don't we find intelligent life in the universe? And, you know, the, the question is, is there a great filter, you know, meaning something that life can't get past? And is it behind us, mm -hmm. in which case we're very fortunate, or is it in front of us, in which case we may be doomed? And it just really reasonably occurred to me that one of the filters I've never heard written about is the notion that every race, which is got its own need for comfort and its own desire to escape its tough evolutionary past and fear just builds the matrix. Right. It just builds a perfect world where all you can do is you just sit there and all you get is, is positive stimuli. And then you just stop evolving, stop growing, and you just disappear from the universe, right? You just build a box and you just, you just trap yourself in it. And, you know, I don't think that's the likely outcome, but I think we may be going through a multi-generational period where we really are going to have to figure out how to deal with these new media because they don't make us smarter. I was uh, reading a, 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 the great science fiction author, William Gibson, was talking on Twitter about how no science fiction author would have predicted that we would have too much information in the future and that people would just choose what they wanted to believe out of that vast stream of information and that that would cause all of the problems. So I'm fascinated by that, sort of that whole idea. Let me talk to you a little bit about one of the things FX has really become known for is you do a lot of limited series. You know, you have the American horror stories and the American crime stories and things like that that reset with every cycle. But then you also have like the upcoming uh, Bob Fosse 
bio miniseries, let's say, which I assume you're not going to do other variations on that. So tell me a little bit about like choosing to sort of pursue that strategy. It's not like you're not doing traditional dramas. You still have things like Pose and Mayans and some of these other shows, but it certainly, it feels like you've put your eggs in that basket a little bit more. I guess we didn't tell you we were going to do Bob Fosse and Gwen Verdon in the Middle Ages. <laughs> Bob Fosse and Gwen Verdon in space. Can they be pirates one time? <laughs> pirates, of course. <laughs> have to be pirates. You know, genres go through broad cycles, right? So The Sopranos comes along and it opens a, a new set of, of form factors and ideas about what's possible in drama. And that begets The Shield and begets The Wire and begets Breaking Bad and Mad Men and, you know, on and on and on. And look, I think Ozark's a good show. I like Ozark, but I think it's very hard to do a show uh, about an anti-hero that doesn't feel like there are at least elements of it that are familiar from prior shows. And in general, I feel like the the sort of prize became that, that prestige serialized drama, right? Everybody wanted that. And that became the thing that could make you money and define your brand. And, you know, I thought we were over mining sort of overstrip mining the possibilities of the dramatic genre. I, I got to a point where I felt like a lot of what I was hearing felt like a clone of a clone, right, derivative. And then meanwhile, what I felt is, okay, but we had this orthodoxy that we had to make multi-episode seasons, and there's a lot of business reasons why you might want to do that. You get a marketing head start in the subsequent years, and you know you get people, audience really attached to it, and they're more attached to your brand, but... In between the two-hour movie, you know, and hundreds of thousands of those have been made, and the multi-season episodic series, there's the possibilities of larger canvas storytelling, meaning what can you do in six or eight or ten or twelve hours? And, of course, there were miniseries. It's not as if this is the first era of miniseries, but what happened hadn't happened from my standpoint is that when television became capable of doing something as good as the best cinema, best film or as good as serialized dramatic storytelling, then you could start to apply that to the limited series genre, that level of writing, that level of actor, that level of performance. And all of a sudden that opened up possibilities within something like the biography. It's actually very, very hard to cram a whole human life, all of the impact of certain decisions into two hours. But you got 10 or 20 or 30, you can actually do a more nuanced and deep portrait. So I guess an analogy I would use is I think it's very hard to make a biography as good as Citizen Kane if you're making a two-hour movie. But I think the next Citizen Kane is probably a 10-hour biography where someone will find with the possibilities of the form a new way of approaching story about character and about life. So we just we just heard better ideas. And so we just bought fewer dramas and more limited series because we thought that's where the that's where the gold was. And you, I mean you just wrapped The Americans, which is sort of one of the acclaimed series of this decade, but it was a very heavy lift, I think, to find that show's audience. I think it did eventually. At least people started reading our articles about it, which <laughs> you know, in like season three I wasn't sure whatever happened. Did that sort of give you pause about how overfilled that space was? Because that's a great drama, but it's still an anti-hero drama, you know. It does give me pause. I think I think one of the one of the challenges is if there's plenty of good stuff and it's cheap and easy and convenient, a lot of people aren't going to take the trouble to find the great stuff, right? Uh, arguably, that's what you're here to help them do. But the truth is, when a market gets oversaturated and when 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 a distributor gets an advantage, like a big streaming service that just has a lot of people spending a lot of time. 
they would be able to get somebody to watch something that's just good versus the inconvenience of having them come to your place and watch something great. So I think I think that's good on some level because I think the standard for what's a good enough television show goes up and up and up. And I don't mind having the audience hold their feet to the fire. But I will say that one of the things that's tough right now is I was saying I'd read, read your recent article about the difficulty of second seasons, which I liked. I thought it was really astute. But you think about how almost impossible it is not to bobble the ball, right? How, how difficult it is. How many series in the history of television you could legitimately say never lost you, never had a season that, that made you want to tune out. And I think there's so many options for the audience right now that, that, a, that one bad season, it's not that everyone will leave the show, but a lot of people will just say, you know what, moving on. There's other good things to do. So I think the standard, not only of what's a good enough television show, a good enough pilot or a good enough first season, but what's a good enough second season? What's a show, you know, what's a show that gets better and better and better? Because what you can see is in those rare cases that a show keeps growing, like Breaking Bad or maybe The Americans, its reputation keeps growing, its word of mouth keeps growing, and people will go and take the trouble. It really is a trouble at a certain point when you're 30, 40, 50 episodes behind to enter a show. It feels like a really heavy lift. So you better have somebody telling you, this is a life-changingly good show if you're going to make that kind of commitment. Right. Do you feel perhaps that the serialized drama, I kind of increasingly feel like the idea that you need to watch every episode is a problem. And I'm wondering if there's a middle space between I need to watch all 60 episodes of Breaking Bad so I can understand the finale or however many episodes that did, but not, you know, the CSI thing where every episode is a hard reset. I'm wondering if you, especially having done so many season-long anthologies, if you think about that problem of, is there a way to balance that in a slightly different way? Well, here's the problem that I think about, is that, the, that in a way, the, the, the form factor of television has gone from the episode to the season, uh, meaning the units are, are not so much episodes as seasons in many cases. And I think, I think actually one of the weaknesses of the streaming model is you just order so much volume and the whole season is there available at one time if you drop them all at once. And therefore, you don't really care that much whether the second episode or the fifth episode's all that good. It just has to be a bridge between the first and the third or the fourth and the sixth, right? Mm, yeah. And you start to make episodes that are not specifically intended to be good and freestanding and good narrative storytelling in them, them, themselves. You can get a little bit lazy and I feel like I've been watching a lot of shows lately that I think are kind of lazy in the sense that they just don't address the, the, the fact that, in my view anyway, it's such an obvious statement. The building block of the episodic television show is the episode. And by definition, in my view, the best episodic television show would not only be a great show and would have great seasons, but it would have great episodes. You know, every show has episodes that have a range of, of quality. It's hard to make, you know a 90-episode show where every episode is the equivalent of an Academy Award-winning movie. But we still spend an enormous amount of time reading and watching Rough Cuts and paying attention to each individual episode and are trying not to let ourselves or our writers off the hook in saying it's enough to just pick up the threads of these stories. And I think television will be impoverished if it loses that discipline. You 
obviously still primarily program for the cable network and then things show up on the streaming afterward. But you're experimenting more. You've got this show, Mr. In-Between, a really fun little half-hour drama. Fun is maybe the wrong word, but I enjoyed it, let's say. And you're doing two episodes of that a week. Do you see a future where FX has some stuff that it only does for streaming or something like that? I think that's a possibility. Some of your listeners may know that, you know, Disney has yeah. bought us. Uh, the transaction hasn't closed, and it probably won't for six or eight months. So, so there's a lot we don't know. But I would say I go in with an open mind about what the future may hold. I mean, I think one of the things I've, I've, I've tried very hard to do is, you know, we try not to stand still. We try to use whatever the resources are in the world around us. And, and competition and change is a resource. It's a scary resource, but it's a scary resource. But we try to use that to keep getting better. And, um, and I'd like to use the opportunity afforded to us by a potentially a new owner and a new set of business strategies they bring and the increasing competition to get better. And then the question comes, well, what is, what is better? Because change is not always better. You know, I'm, I have mixed feelings about the binge model of dropping every episode at once. Um, I feel like there's a dialogue between series and their viewers and, and writers and critics when things can be digested and watched. I feel that you as a critic really experience something different if you have the possibility of reflecting and experiencing it over a 10-week or 13-week period of time versus having to cram it all into a day. Part of what happens is when you watch something uh, weekly, you, your life goes on, you live. You're different one week than the next. And so your ability to reflect and think about something changes. And we have a number of creators. Donald Glover would be an example of one who really don't like the binge model. He really wants to be at a place where it's a weekly thing. He likes the idea of having a dialogue with his audience and about surprising the audience. So I'm talking a lot about, about thinking about how to, is there a, any kind of intermediate way of releasing shows that's in between the purely week-to-week episodic and the purely binge, because I think each of those has strengths and weaknesses. And I don't think there is any perfect form, but I don't like the idea of, of everything sort of being dropped all at once. You mentioned the possible merger with Disney, and there's a lot of uncertainty surrounding that. There's a lot of uncertainty in this business. How do you deal with that uncertainty? I think, I think art is about <laughs> dealing with the difficult, perplexing contradictions of life, Right. I think it's about dealing with, with the fact that life and death are two sides of the same coin and comedy and tragedy are immediately adjacent to each other in many cases and beauty and ugliness are, are closely aligned and in dynamic tension with each other. And so, you know, imagine a world in which nobody dies. I think that's an absolutely static world, mm-hmm. right? It's fascinating to me that various writers have come up with various ideas of what not dying means. And it does not mean life goes on the same. It, it, it's various versions of what it is to be undead rather than to be alive, right? Vampires, zombies, various other things. And I think that writers, artists understand that if you didn't die, you would have to suppress the, the existence of new life. You can't be a person that never dies and embrace the welcoming of babies into the world because babies only come into the world because you die and because there's a replacement process. And so... I guess I would say, you know, we try to be a place that thinks like artists and that is a home for artists and isn't afraid of difficult, contradictory things. And so you get scared at this level of change and then you try to use it. You try to say, okay, well, 
we could be crushed by the by the uncertainty of this opportunity, or we could say, what are the possibilities of this new scary opportunity? In the past year, we've had the Me Too movement. We've had uh, things like the Roseanne situation at ABC or the James Gunn situation at Disney. And there is so much more focus now on creating a safe work environment for people, in essence, is a very good umbrella term for that. And I'm wondering... No network, no studio has not been touched by this in some way. I'm wondering how your thinking has shifted on that over this past year and also how FX is sort of taking steps to make sure your sets, your workplaces are safe from harassment, abuse, uh, abusive language, things like that. Yeah. I I will say I think that – I think we have a a very heavy sense of the responsibility not just to set a policy and to educate people around that policy – but to aggressively enforce that policy and aggressively investigate breaches of that policy. So, you know, frankly, the, the investigative process around various complaints has become much more intense. And there are multiple ways that someone can raise their voice or raise their hand and say, I'm not comfortable with this. And, and what happens when that, when that occurs is a much more intense investigation and and depending on the outcome of that investigation, serious change or serious consequences. So I think I and uh, a lot of my colleagues spend a lot more time on it, which is good, I think. I think our, arguably this is this is much-needed change. Uh, and I guess I would say that, you know, uh, and I've talked a little bit about the dynamic balancing of opposites, right? So I'll give you two definitions of freedom. Right, and uh, one definition sort of orients itself towards liberalism, and one orients itself towards conservatism. One definition is to not have anything, anyone tell you what you can and cannot do. That would generally be a more conservative interpretation of freedom. Another would be to not have anything done to you that you would not like to have done to you, mm-hmm. and that would be a more liberal interpretation. And in fact, a society has to figure out how to balance between those two, because if you went all the way to the society represses any behavior that could ever offend anybody at any time and nothing can be done to you that is uncomfortable for you, that would be a totalitarian state. Mm-hmm. And if society went all the way towards everybody can do anything they want to do whenever they want to do it, that would be a totalitarian state. Not only would it be an anarchic, but you'd probably end up with a supreme dictator who was stronger than everyone else and just imposed his will on everyone, right? So... This is an example of one where I I think that this has been really out of balance, right? I think people who've been the victim of various forms of harassment and abuse, there's been a a cover-up, right? Right. They have not been able to speak their truth. They have not been able to come out and talk. And now is a time when when that is changing and where I think we have an obligation to listen to these voices, to take them seriously and to try to recreate our society in a way that's fairer and safer for people. And then what that also creates is the complexity of turning a creative shop like FX into a having a police department, essentially that polices human behavior, and you can't get human behavior to a perfect place. And then there's the question of freedom of speech and other forms of artistic freedom, right? So it's a messy process. It's an inelegant process. It's, it's again, one that, uh, that we embrace. But, um, but I think we're going through a really big transformation in society and in the workplace, and I think Part of what I'm trying to do is not be impatient and say, you know what, this is a process. It's going to be inelegant. It's going to be imperfect. I'm not, I'm not the one to rule on this. It's, this is a rebalancing of society. We have to take various interests and voices seriously. We have to try to find a balance. 
you know, balance is, is imperfect, right? There's an interesting thing that I, I feel like if I think about the history of utopic ideas of how do we reach a perfect state always end up in totalitarian nightmares yeah. because perfection is an impossible thing. It is by definition not a perfect state. It's somebody's version of the perfect state, but we're not one somebody. We're a lot of somebodies. And so ultimately the best version is one that balances competing interests, right? Well, we're kind of heading into the end here. We've talked a lot about the binge model, but I, I give me your defense of sitting down every week at 10 p.m. on a Wednesday and watching whatever FX show is there. Like, what, what's your defense of watching it on the week with the commercials? Like, what do you still find pleasurable about that process? Well, I think I would say I think it would have to be a really, it's a really high bar right now for what would motivate me or, or frankly, anyone to do that. But I guess I would say that we had something precious when we had a common experience. When a good chunk of America sat down on, on a Saturday night and watched All in the Family, and we then had the privilege of digesting it together and talking about it the next day in our families and our workplaces, or when the day after or Roots, or we can think of many others, came along and there was a national conversation for a period of time around... Uh, the possibility of nuclear war or around the history of slavery in this country. I think that was a part of the richness of our culture. And I think we've lost something really precious in the fact that we have fractured experiences now so that even a really, really heavily watched show is watched in sequence and at all times. And we're lonelier, right? We don't have the opportunity to share that experience and to talk about that experience. So I'm not under any illusion that, that, that time goes backwards or that business models go backwards, but um, I, I do cherish that feeling when something is worthy of our attention or appointment and when we can consume it more or less at the same time. I think that's why Donald Glover wants Atlanta to go out. He's really, really tough about keeping the episode secret. He wants to have the, the audience to have the experience of anticipating the unknown and what might or might not happen in a given week. He wants to surprise them, and then he wants to he wants them to settle them or challenge them. He wants them to have the opportunity to try to digest and talk about. And uh, you know, I hope I'd, I hope we don't lose that in its entirety because I think it's I think it's something worth keeping. One last question: I'm asking everybody I talk to for this little series, what's a show on somebody else's network that you really love? You know, it doesn't, it doesn't even have to be like I wish I had it. Just like you really love to watch it. Um, I just watched Killing Eve on BBC oh, yeah. America. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was show. really fun, really stylish. It's terrific performances. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Right. Well, John Landgraf, thank you so much for joining. It's good to talk to you, Todd. Stick around for a conversation with Jonathan Price, but first, some words from our friends at Martinis and Murder. Hey there, I'm John. And I'm Darren. And this is Martinis and Murder. A weekly podcast that rehashes crimes, investigates new information, and ponders theories you may have never even considered. And we do it all while drinking. Because frankly, that's how most things in life should be done, right? Of course. From murders you've seen on the news to remote crimes in areas of the world you've never even heard of. We're the place for mysterious murders and creepy crimes. So hit that subscribe button to make sure you get new episodes downloaded every week. Sit back, relax, and get ready for Martinis Martinis and Murder. Murder. Ooh, this is good, Matt. (laughs) 
Hey, we're back. Jonathan Price is somebody whose name I first got to know from my obsessive listening to the original cast recording of Miss Saigon when I was a young child. He originated the role of the engineer in that show. But since then, I've gotten to know him through any number of famous film roles. He was terrific in this movie called Carrington, which is about a dying writer. And I realized that that sounds depressing, and it was, but he was great in it. The movie Tomorrow Never Dies is not a terribly great Bond film, but he is a really great character in it. And then he's been in like the Pirates of the Caribbean franchise. He was in Brazil. He was in Glengarry Glen Ross. Most notably and most recently, you probably saw him in Game of Thrones, where he played the hyper-religious High Sparrow. He's now in a new movie called The Wife with Glenn Close. He plays a Nobel Prize winning author. And what's interesting about this movie is how it's focused on the perspective of his wife. Normally you'd expect something like this to be told about the author as he prepares for his big award. But what's beautiful about this is it really focuses on the sacrifices that his wife, again, played by Glenn Close, has made over the years to help him attain this goal. And then there are some kind of twists in the movie, which I don't dare spoil, but it's a surprisingly like plot-heavy movie for being such a character study. And that's what I really liked about it. And I really liked the way that Price was willing to play this man who sort of seems above it all and intellectual. And then when he's in the dirt with his wife, when they're having, you know, fights or discussions, or even just like talking about what they're going to have for breakfast, you can sense all this water that's under their bridge. I, I think it's a really terrific little movie. I think he's terrific in it. And we wanted to talk to him about some notable firsts in his long long and storied career. So Jonathan Price is up now. Jonathan, thank you for being here. My pleasure. So we're going to do something we call firsts, which is we're going to take you through some of the firsts in your illustrious career. And I just kind of want to start, you know, at the very beginning, do you remember your first audition, even if it was like for playing the rabbit in some elementary school play? I didn't have to audition, Mm -hmm. but I was... uh, seven I think it was I was six or seven might have been a bit younger and it was the school play and it was called uh a fairy gold and in my mother's house I found the uh the ticket for fairy gold she still had it and I was playing an elf my mother had made the costume instead of a, a shot silk it was half green half brown with the fringe bottom and I had a line that was uh Come, brothers, for it is cold. <laughs> and we had the rehearsal, and I said, Come, b- b- brothers, for it is c- 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 cold, which I thought was uh, great method work at that age. Brilliant. And uh, the teacher took the line away from me <laughs> and gave it to somebody else. <laughs> and uh, from that day to this, I've determined that no one will ever take a line away from me. <laughs> when you were in that situation, were you like, I want to do more of this? Or was it just, were you still too young to really have it? No, I was more, I was, ang- I was more angry that they'd taken the line <laughs> away. And that also Melvin Evans mm. was playing the king mm-hmm. and I really wanted to play the king. Yeah. There were kids who always had like two candles of uh, yeah. snot hanging down their nose and he had them. And I said, how can you cast that boy? <laughs> Even then, he can't be a king. He's got a snotty nose. Anyway. What was kind of the first time you were like, I want to do this for a living? Uh, Well, that was a long time coming because uh, uh, all I was interested in at school was was art. Mm -hmm. And I left school at 16 and went to art school where I stayed for two years. And then I went to a 
teacher training college to teach art. Then you had to do a subsidiary course. And I was told the easiest course to do that required the least amount of work was the drama course. Mm -hmm. And so I said, that sounds great, that's for me. So I signed up and they needed people on the drama course. Mm -hmm. Not everybody was doing it. But my main interest has still been painting and drawing and uh, creative arts. Anyway, my tutor was a man called Jerry Dawson who ran a theatre company in Liverpool. Okay. And I started working with him and this company. And they were, they were an amateur company, but they'd originally been a communist theatre company. Okay. It was Unity Theatre, but there was a branch in London. So it was all good stuff, uh, but still I thought I was going to be a teacher. Mm-hmm. And then one day a tutor from another college saw me act and said, have you ever thought of being an actor? Mm-hmm. And I said, no, no, of course <laughs> not. And he said, well, I think you should, and I think you should go to the Royal Academy. Uh, so he sent off for the papers. He'd been to the Royal Academy. And he coached me through two audition speeches. I got a scholarship, and uh, I got a place, and... I never took my final exam at college. And then I realized I didn't want to be a teacher anyway. Do you remember thinking at that time, if the acting didn't work out, you could always fall back on being a teacher? No, because I hadn't taken my final exam. (laughs) I don't know how it works. Can you just go and take the exam then? I suppose I could have done whatever, but it was like, I enjoyed teaching and I enjoyed that side of my coursework, you know, when you went out and teaching practice. But I, I didn't see myself doing it forever. And, you know, I was, what was I, 21. Um, so uh, it was worth giving it a try. And it meant I could go and live in London where I'd never lived and right. only visited a couple of times. Mm. But it was a great uh, eye-opener mm. and a mm. quick learn about theatre. Do you remember what your first day job was, the thing that you were doing to sort of support yourself while you were? No, I, I acted straight away. Really? Excellent. Yeah. What would, so what was the first time you got paid then? So the first job, I'm doing my final uh, production at RADA, and it's a play called Ride a Cock Horse by David Mercer. And it's one man and three or four women. So I was going to get noticed. But uh, I'd done a production of Oklahoma at RADA, and it sang in the Poor Judd is Dead barbershop quartet, and I sang very high tenor then. The musical director, his next job was at the theatre in Liverpool called the Everyman Theatre. And he was MD on Brecht's The Caucasian Chalk Circle. And he'd written the role of the narrator for a very high tenor voice. So he told the director in Liverpool about me and said, I've got this guy who can sing. Let's give him a job. So Alan Dosser, the director, came to see this show I was in at drama school. I discovered that he hadn't stayed for the whole show, but at the interval he left a message for me saying, there's a job at the Everyman for for you if you want it. Hmm. So uh, that was it. I went to the Everyman. Uh, Chalk Circle was uh, the second or third in the season. First job was Elbow Hmm. in Measure for Measure. Okay. Do you know this role? I I don't offhand, no. (laughs) He's the policeman figure. Right. And he's a bit of a clown. It's not a, a clown role, but he's a bit of an, the village idiot. So that was that was the actual the first role on stage was that, and for which the wages were eighteen pounds a week. Mm. Not a lot to live on. Uh, your rent was five pounds a week, but a bottle of wine was uh, 
the equivalent of 50 cents or something, you know. <laughs> yeah. So it was different days. Yeah. Yeah, and I stayed there for nearly two years, two seasons, and then went to Nottingham Theatre with Richard Eyre, now Sir Richard Eyre, and did a play there called Comedians, mm-hmm. which took me to London and then took me to New York, to Broadway. Mm-hmm. It was a quick journey. Yeah, yeah, I, I, it's, it sounds like it. So you uh, mentioned Measure for Measure, and I know that uh, British actors I've talked to, like doing Shakespeare is like a rite of passage for people in the UK. What was your relationship to Shakespeare's work like before you got that play? And like, how has it evolved over your career? Are you a big Shakespeare fan or do you like I'm a big Shakespeare doer. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'd studied one play while I was at school, uh, uh, Henry V. Uh, you studied that for an exam. We, we dabbled in Shakespeare, not very much. And then Measure for Measure at this theatre and then the beginning of the following season I played uh, Richard III. Okay, sure. Uh, and... I played Edgar in Lear. Now, the theatre was a... It was a, a socialist theatre. It had a left-wing policy. and But we did a mixture of classic plays, which we needed to do for schools to come and see, and a mixture of uh, new plays specially written for that theatre company. And they were usually uh, dealing with issues in Liverpool at the time or uh, political issues in Britain at the time. So during the course of my career there I did a season at the Royal Shakespeare Company in 79 uh, playing Petruchio Octavius Caesar I got upgraded to play Angelo in Measure of Measure I wasn't the clown anymore I was there and then I played Hamlet in 1980 at the Royal Court Theatre if you've done that much Shakespeare maybe you'll remember this but do you remember your first time you had to do a death scene and and how do you prepare for a death scene because that's such a it's a <laughs> thing that you first can't... you live <laughs> yeah. and you die <laughs> my first death the last couple of years I've died in almost every job I've done <laughs> but the fir- I think the first one was Richard the third when a right it was dagger through him or a big sword I think it was at the time yeah and I've died a lot well, it's a thing that you can't really draw from experience for. So, like, how do you – unless you've watched somebody no, you die, you know? I did one film. I did a film at Carrington. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, it's a great film, Well, yeah. Lytton Strachey is lying in bed dying and famously said, if this is dying, I don't think much of it. <laughs> and we had a nurse on uh, on the set who – her other job was she worked as a cancer nurse and um, – counseled patients who were terminally ill and she described to me the process of dying right about that uh that last breath the all-important last breath when you think someone has died they've passed and then they'll take one last breath interesting after a gap and i'd had described to me how um an uncle of mine when he was dying of cancer he'd sat up on this last breath and put his arms out, stretched his arms upwards and was staring upwards. Mm. Yeah, it's it's easy when they blow you up. Yeah. <laughs> Game of Thrones, you <laughs> yeah, get blown exactly. up. Yeah. Taboo, they blew me up. Yeah. And uh, I've just played Don Quixote and the man who killed Don Quixote, so that's not a spoiler alert. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody's got to die called Don. Do people ever say to you, oh, this role is perfect for you? And like, what do you... Well, when you die. <laughs> <laughs> no. What do you, like when they say like, oh, this is a great Jonathan Price role, like what do you take from that if they do say that to you? If it happens in the form of uh, a new play coming to me and they say, I've written this for you, 
I, I won't go near it because <laughs> it's generally their perception of what I can do and that's not what appeals to me. I like to surprise myself and surprise an audience and hopefully have them say, well, you know, if they're going to say anything at all, well, I didn't know he could do that. I didn't know he could be like that. Do you remember that your first film you did? First uh, feature film. First feature film. Yeah. First feature film was uh, Voyage of the Damned. Okay, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. about the um, the 1939 uh, boat of Jewish refugees who tried to come to the U.S. Yeah. and were rebuffed. Yeah. What's your memory of that experience? This producer, Lou Grade, was making, um, he hoped, making big box office uh, movies. He made Raise the... Raise the Titanic. Raise the Titanic, yeah. <laughs> and I think his famous quote is, it would have been cheaper to have lowered the sea or something. One, um, of, the great, one of the great bad movies, Raise the yeah, Titanic. I, yeah. I love that one, yeah. Well, Voyage of the Damned was made on a huge scale. So it was uh, a, a top director in Stuart Rosenberg who directed Cool Hand Luke and others. Top cameraman, everything was uh, top of their field. But the beginning of the film where they were supposed to be the Jewish population of uh, Germany that were being released or allowed to leave the country. This was before the war had broken out. It was like a cavalcade of stars and a walk down for the beginning of murder on the Orient Express or something. Mm -hmm. My biggest memory is Faye Dunaway and her furs. <laughs> the first two weeks were location shooting off the coast of Barcelona. Yeah. So every day we'd set sail mm -hmm. on this uh, liner. And uh, unless you were a really big star, you got called every day because you were normally in the background of a scene or they would jump to your scene, you know. So it meant that every night you'd, well, I'm probably not going to work tomorrow, so you'd go out on the town in Barcelona and get hammered on Fondador. <laughs> and great. Uh, go to the boat in the morning and go to your cabin yeah. mm -hmm. and sleep it off. Yeah. <laughs> and that's what I did this one day until the knot came on the door and said, uh, John, we're, we're uh, jumping to your scene now. We've got some weather cover and we can... Yeah. And I said, what now? Mm -hmm. So I was playing a, a real character, uh, Joseph Manasseh, who'd been released from a concentration camp. And uh, I had my head shaved and uh, I was very thin at the time anyway. I had the scene to do on the deck and I could barely speak. Yeah. Because my head was hammering. Oh, wow. Yeah. And... Uh, I got to the end of the scene and um, the director, Stuart Rosenberg, who was shorter than me, came up to me and uh, put his hand on my shoulder. And after he'd said cut, he said, you are some motherfucker. <laughs> and my praise doesn't go any higher than that. <laughs> and I was just, yeah, thanks. Thank you. Well, I do want to ask. And uh, that was it. That was my... Uh, Major put so if you see that film and you see my one scene in that film, you'll know what was going on in my head. Pain. <laughs> well, I do want to ask you a question about the wife because I think you're great in the movie and I really love the movie. Do you remember the the first scene you shot with Glenn? Because you two have such a I do remember real the first relationship. Scene I shot with her, yeah. I hope it's not a spoiler, but can can you go into that? No, it's not a spoiler. It's right at the beginning of the film, okay. and it's when uh, we're waiting to hear whether I'm going to win the Nobel Prize. And I've got up and I come back to bed and I eat and I uh, get into bed with Glenn 
And the, this was all done on the first day of shooting. And I turn to her and I say, how about a quickie? <laughs> and uh, we did a Q&A somewhere recently and they said, tell me about the sex scene. And I had to think really hard because I thought, there was a sex scene in there? Yeah, film? yeah. Well, we end every episode by asking our guests some, some of the same questions. I'm going to ask you one of those. You've had such a long career You've, you've played so many great roles. If people do recognize you for something you've done, what, what is it that they come up to you and say, hey, I loved you in this? In recent years, very much Game of Thrones. Yeah, I figured. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah you can't get away from it. <laughs> it's everywhere. Everywhere. Mm. I uh, was on a ferry boat in China a year ago, coming down the gangplank to a small island in China. And the first thing as I got on the harbor was, High Sparrow, High Sparrow, High Sparrow. <laughs> yeah. So... Mm. You can't miss it. (laughs) Well, Jonathan, thank you so much. The movie is The Wife. Thank you very much. Thanks. This is far from my first podcast. I'm Todd Vanderwerf, the I and I think you're interesting and also the host and executive producer. The producer of this show is Bridget Armstrong. Our executive producer of audio at Vox Media is Nishak Kurwa. Our sound designer is Miles Ewell. Our logo design is thanks to Victor Ware, Crystal Stevens, and Georgia Cowley. Our production manager is Alex Ulreich. And our production coordinator is Carrie Clements. Our audio engineering is thanks to Rebel Talk Network, who was so gracious. Ernie Hurtado was so gracious to join me at the Beverly Wilshire Hotel and then the Beverly Hilton Hotel to record these conversations. Please remember to listen to Martinis and Murder. You can listen to that wherever podcasts are available. And, you know, while you're at it, why don't you rate, review, and subscribe to this show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Stitcher or wherever you get those podcasts. You can email me, Todd at Vox.com. I read all your emails. I read all your reviews. You can email the whole show at ityi.podcast, itye.podcast at Vox.com. And you can tweet at me at TVOTI to Vody. We're going to be back next week with some people from some of my favorite movies of the summer. I'm excited for you to get to hear that. But until then... I'm not the mayor of podcasts yet, but I, I'm, I'm working at it. Please vote for me in the 2018 podcast elections. What is your sun sign? What's your moon sign? What's your rising sign? I actually have no idea what mine are. I know I'm a Sagittarius and that's about it, but I still love the latest episode of Vox's show on Netflix, Astrology Explained. Go check it out. It's going to explore why so many people across so many cultures still look for meaning in the stars, what horoscopes really are and how they work and where they come from. And you're going to find out all about why like the psychological effects in astrology work the way they do. And you're going to find out why astrologers and astronomers have had a sometimes friendly, often fraught relationship throughout history. So to check that out, you can search for Explained on Netflix or go to netflix.com slash explained. That's netflix.com slash explained. Find out all about how the stars are going to change your life or not.